This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. All right. One, two. This is this is this is Raider Boston. An hour before sunrise, Marlowe breathes gently, asleep in his bed. He has slept well every night since his release from Shawmut, the sleep of a man who has faced crisis and prevailed. All charges were dropped in assured recognition of his innocence and ignorance of any wrongdoing. He even wears a hint of a smile as he dreams of pleasant conversation, an old favorite fantasy of Marlowe's, calling into the old radio show Car Talk, sharing his thoughts about power windows live on air, while Click and Clack listen, enraptured by his insights. Marlowe is unaware that, back in the waking world, he has a visitor in his home. A visitor who sits by Marlowe's bed, watching him sleep. The visitor does not breathe so easily as Marlowe. He is stricken by a tension of uncertainty, and will not feel peace until that tension is released. He felt this tension as he drove to Marlowe's neighborhood and parked around the corner. He felt this tension as he entered the house through a rear entrance after picking the lock. He felt this tension as he crept through the house to Marlowe's bedroom. The sound of his footsteps thoroughly masked by Marlowe's white noise machine. Even in his sleep, it seems Marlowe cannot abide quiet. And now the visitor sits, still ruminating on his tension. He is making a decision. Whether Marlowe will awaken to another day, or whether this night's peaceful repose will be... Everlasting. This has gotten darker than expected. There are too many loose ends. Michael Tate has been released, but he does not know me or of my involvement. Oliver West knows of my involvement, but he is in hiding. Philip West knows of my involvement, but he is protected. Philip is the mayor's lackey now. A risky place to leave a man like Philip. But Guy suspected that the mayor, too, was complicit in the conspiracy Oliver had orchestrated. Guy was not privy to many details, but knew his business. He could put the pieces together. 
And so for now, Guy could count on the mayor's own culpability to prevent Philip from exposing Guy. Then there was Marlowe. Marlowe, who had ferried Guy from point to point, from crime scene to crime scene, from Oliver to Phil to Michael. Marlowe, who knew more of Guy's movements than anyone else. Marlowe, whose curiosity could not be squelched. Marlowe is a man who asks too many questions. Questions that should not be asked. Worse, Marlowe is a man who may answer questions. Dangerous questions. Marlowe has seen my face. Marlowe has seen my work. Marlowe knows that I am Guy. People had already begun to ask Marlowe questions. People who want to find their way to Guy. Guy knows this. That is why Guy is here. To ensure that Marlowe does not answer such questions. But Marlowe likes to talk. It is his nature. He is not a man who keeps secrets or values privacy. He is a man whose thoughts become words from his mouth. A man like this will not willingly choose silence. A man like this must have silence induced by other means. I have three methods by which I may ensure a man's silence. I hope one of them is just asking very nicely. No, asking nicely is not in Guy's repertoire of strategies. My first method is money. Bribery. This method is very effective for silencing men who are greedy or who are desperate. I do not think that Marlowe can be silenced with money. Marlowe is not motivated by greed or by desperation, or even by pragmatism. Marlowe does not follow rules when rules have been given to him in exchange for money. I will rule out the strategy of money. My second method is intimidation. This method is very effective for silencing men who are cowardly or who are vain. Men who value their own existence above all else. I do not think that Marlowe can be intimidated into silence. Marlowe is too naive for cowardice or vanity. Marlowe does not comprehend when he is being intimidated. Most men do not ask questions once I have made it clear that I do not wish to be questioned. But Marlowe is oblivious to my threat. I will rule out the strategy of intimidation. My third method is murder. That is definitely the worst option. It is the most certain option. Murder is a reliable method. Murder always works. 
Any man may be silenced by murder. Even Marlowe. I believe that murder is my best option in this circumstance. Murder is an option that appeals to Guy. It would be easy. Marlowe sleeps heavily upon a bed beset by pillows. Why does Marlowe have so many pillows? It's at least two dozen. That is an unreasonable number of pillows. And any one of those pillows can easily become a weapon. An instrument of silence. He takes one into his hands now, without even standing from his chair. He chooses one from the foot of the bed, a thick, down-filled pillow in a blue pillowcase decorated all over with the Ford logo. He stands and approaches Marlowe, whose lips are moving, expounding upon some unknown subject even now within his dream. Power windows. I said that earlier. Marlowe speaks a lot, at great length, about nothing. He is a man categorically in need of silencing. To murder you is no challenge. You're small and you're helpless. I can simply lean forward and press this pillow against your face. That would be the end of you. I've murdered such men as you before. Men who ran their mouths without pause. Men who endangered my life and livelihood. I have strangled them. I have wrung silence from them with my hands. Those murders have always been a relief. I should find the same relief in your death. I should be glad to end your questions by choking them at their source. I should not hesitate. I should be eager for your death as I have been eager for such death in the past. However... This time, I find that I'm reluctant. Marlo, I do not wish to murder you. This was unexpected. Confusing, and above all, inconvenient. And so Guy did the one thing that Guy was always most reluctant to do. Guy asked a question. Why? Why is it that I do not wish to murder Marlowe? I had an unusual experience not very long ago. An experience that has changed my life for the better. An experience that has left me, after all this time, in possession of a truck. I acquired this truck from a ghost, but that's not important. What is important is the bond that forms between a man and his truck. A bond of familiarity and of common cause, of shared labor. It is a bond that I have long envied in other men and, and their trucks. And yet, 
It is a bond far more powerful than, than even I imagined. It is a bond upon which a new life may be built. It is inviolate. What? And so I, I must consider the bond that exists between Marlow and Marlow's truck. Bertha, I was wrong to say the truck must not have name. Truck has name. Truck's name is Bertha. Bertha is a good truck. And so Guy is forced to confront an undeniable truth. That to harm a man is to harm all who love that man. As Bertha surely loves Mar- Marlo? What? You know what? This is weird. But it's headed in a good direction. So I'm just going to let it go. I cannot cause harm to Bertha. To harm Marlo is to harm Bertha. Echo, I cannot murder Marlo. <sighs> Guy tried his best to set aside his disappointment. To think of what really mattered. Gertrude. G- Gertrude is the name of his truck? I think that was clear from context. Gertrude is a good truck. We are alike. Gertrude has killed a man as I have killed a man. But Gertrude did not intend to kill. She would not like to kill again. I believe that Gertrude would not like for me to kill again. I must learn to be a better man. For my truck. Ah, <sighs> Marlo. You would like Gertrude if you met her. You will not meet her. But you, you will live. Guy stood and left Marlowe's bedside. He exited through the front door. Uh, he turned right and walked. Uh, he, he walked. He walked two blocks to where he had parked Gertrude, safely away from the scene of the crime. That would not take place. Wait, wait, wait. How'd you... Guy gave Gertrude a gentle pat on her hood. And thought of how many ways she had changed his life. Changed him. He was a gentler man now. A less selfish man. And Gertrude's engine purred in contentment. Well, shit. Meanwhile, Marlowe slept peacefully. When he woke, he felt rested and happy as he went about this day, and all of his days. Yes, well, fine. You took Guy, a minor player. Just a pawn in the grand game. Nobody is ever just a pawn. A character of little importance to our story. However philosophical you may care to be about it. But not one you should have lost so easily. There are still plenty more in play. Yes, you have the mayor and her husband, I'm aware. And Nika. You don't have Nika. Don't I? She's... she's better now. Is she? 
I think her direction remains in doubt. But we'll see, won't we? Yes, 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 we will see. Greater Boston is written and produced by Alexander Danner and Jeff Andrews and with recording and technical assistance from Mark Harmon. This episode featured Braden Lamb as Leon Stamatis, Mike Linden as Guy and Marlow, and Alexander Danner as the narrator. Charlie and the MTA is recorded by Emily Peterson and Dirk Teedy. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. <laughs> Not a sandwich. <laughs> You know the difference between a wrap and a sandwich, really? I don't know, Marlo. What, what's the difference between a sandwich and uh, a, a wrap? Well, one of them's got bread and the other one doesn't. Like, so, that's the difference. Huh. Yeah. It's funny when you think about it. That's, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Well, only certain types of wraps are sweet. Some of them are savory. Hey, Marlo. <laughs> uh, hi, uh, it's, it's, it's me, Michael. Oh, yeah, um, I was, I was I sleeping just, just yeah, but that's okay. Yeah, no, 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 you are sleeping, actually. I was just... Um, <gasps> this is a dream. Wow. We've never actually met. You know, um, I was wondering about that. Exactly. I know a lot of people, and I know I know there's Ma- Michael from from down the street. There's, right. no, there's not me. No, yeah, no. yeah. You're not Michael with the red car, are you? Uh, well, I I live in the red line actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like in the train. Yeah. So you train, Michael. Yeah, I was okay. been listening to your conversation the whole time. But that's only a little bit creepy because I'm sleeping. Yeah. 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 But just to let you know, um, you are also speaking those words out loud in the real world. Oh, um, how and, about uh, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, just wanted to let you know. Yeah. Um, there's someone else here, too? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, you may want to think about waking up soon. It's just a right, right, a party in here, also, isn't it? Also, can you hold this unicorn for me? Thank you. I, I would love to. Oh, wait, no. Uh, wait, where'd he go? Man, now I'm stuck with a unicorn. The Fable and Folly Network where fiction producers flourish. Jesters of Ravenloft is a new podcast being recorded on Twitch. It's D&D 5e, and we'd love to tell you about it, but we can't. Because seriously, the cast know nothing about what is going to happen. Adam McNamara is mystified. Del Borovic is baffled. Guy Bradford is bewildered. Tyler Hewitt is even more clueless than usual. And me, Ryan LaPlante, the DM, I'm the only person who knows what's going on. We're live on Twitch May 31st at 8.30 p.m. EST. And every Friday after our Wednesday night shows, we'll be dropping two episodes of Jesters of Ravenloft here. So get ready, subscribe, and soon you will be journeying into Ravenloft alongside our Jesters. Oh yeah, don't tell them about the whole Ravenloft thing. They really know nothing. <laughs>